Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Rita McGrath is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and a longtime professor at my alma mater, Columbia Business School. She is widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. She received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. As a consultant to CEOs, her work has had a lasting impact on the strategy and growth programs of Fortune 500 companies worldwide. She is the author of numerous books, including The End of Competitive Advantage, Discovery Driven Growth, and her latest book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. In this episode, Rita talks about her discovery-driven planning approach, which has really transformed the traditional strategic planning approaches companies used to design strategies and gave birth to the now popular agile and lean startup approaches. She's going to give us some practical tips to get smarter at predicting and preparing for the inflection points that will inevitably disrupt your industry. And here's a hint. Stop thinking about or even using the word industry in your strategy. Instead, think about arenas. Uh, This may seem like a subtle shift, but it can transform how you design strategy and could determine whether you will be on the giving or the receiving end of disruption. You want to. No, I say you need to hear her advice. Stick around. Rita, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Diane. Always, always a pleasure. I have gotten to know you, uh, but some of our listeners have not. So I'd like to start us off with a little personal thing. And I'm just going to throw a sentence at you, ask you to complete this. If you really know me, you know that. I'm a secret country music fan. Really? <laughs> I mean, I like other kinds of music too, but I think I like the stories. Yeah, I love country music. I love country music. <laughs> you are also a strategist. And you spend a lot of time thinking about strategy. And so I asked this question of all our guests and never have gotten the same answer. What is your definition of strategy? Oh, um, well, I think of strategy as a central integrated concept of how we're going to achieve our objectives. And each word there really matters. So central means I could sort of pluck three people from your organization at random and ask what our strategy is. And I'd get back something that sounded vaguely coherent. Uh, integrated means it all has to work together. So if I want to be Nordstrom's, which is a very fancy department store uh, here in the United States, then that means I'm going to really pour training and energy into my salespeople. My stores are going to look very slick and inviting. And that's going to be a completely different experience than, say, if I'm Target or Walmart or a more middle-of-the-road retailer. And what often happens is people make the mistake of taking bits and pieces from one model and trying to jam it into another. So integrate it is really important. It's a concept. And so one of the problems with strategy is it has to be communicated human brain to human brain. You know, it's not something tangible that you can drop on the floor and say, see, there's it. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's about a how. And I think this is where a lot of otherwise really smart people mess up, which is they get mixed up between the goal and the way you're going to get to that goal. So they'll say, our strategy is to be the number one market share player, right? I'm like, well, that sounds really great, but (laughs) how? (laughs) 
like better prices, better differentiation, geographic scope. How are you going to do that? And when did you start getting interested in strategies? Just a little bit of how you fell into this as one of your topics. Well, I didn't really start off thinking as a strategist. I think I started off more organizationally and it came from some work I was doing years ago, which today we would realize was a digital transformation. We didn't call it that then because we didn't have the language, but I was going, I was working in a government agency. So very, very exciting. And we were taking basically a paper manual process and converting it to digital form. And in the course of doing that, I just saw all the ways organizations struggle with change and innovation. And so I started out wanting to write a thesis about the science of implementation. And then I got to the Wharton School when I was signed up to do my PhD. And I happened to fall under the purview of the Entrepreneurship Center there. The director of the center at the time was Ian McMillan, with whom I've written a lot and done a lot with. He looked at me and he said, I can't think of anything more boring than the science of implementation. And then right around that time, we started work on a project with Citibank, as it was known then. And it was a three-year grant we got to study their internal venturing process. And what I realized was all the things I'd bumped up against with the digital transformation work was exactly the same as what we were wrestling with with innovation, which is high uncertainty conditions, all kinds of political factors that fit in or not, people that were motivated by different things, and 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 and. Mm-hmm. And so that really got me uh, onto the subject of corporate venturing or corporate innovation. So the journey from corporate innovation to strategy was actually a pretty small step because about half the time, what I saw was people would say, we want to be innovative, we want to do new things, and yet they'd get to a certain critical mass and then the strategy people would go, well, that's not on track with our strategy. You know, and So you had this moment, and this was very popular a few years ago, where people were like, let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, and we want, to, we want to get out there, we want to do management by walking around, and I'm sure you remember all those things. And that was all great, but then I realized if we don't have a central integrated concept, of where this is supposed to be taking us, a lot of that energy just gets wasted because you get to a certain point and the people that have power in the organization basically say, well, that's not what we wanted. (laughs) So it gets to be a very controversial thing. And then there's another layer that you also have worked in. I'm not going to articulate it as cleanly as you, but the idea of a strategy also having some level of experimentation and trial and learning. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think when you look at strategy today, we inherited the field, we working in the academic field of strategy, really inherited it from industrial economics. And as that name suggests, it suggests a world in which there are such things as industries. The shakeout period is behind us. We've got stable industry contours and stable mechanisms of exchange, and people know how to describe what we do. And what I've worked on my whole career, really, and I think the world has come this way, is actually that's not very good because what happens is you have this thing called a sustainable competitive advantage, and that's what everybody says they want. What you're ignoring is there's a whole process by which new advantages come into being, which you can think of as the innovation or transformation process. There is indeed this process of exploitation when you found something and it works and you know that's going to be great. But then every strategy has a sell-by date, so you have this period of erosion. And I think what we've done in the academic field of strategy is we've so focused on this period of sustainable advantage that we've left big amounts unstudied in the front part, you know, the innovation part, as well as what happens when you need to pull out of something because its opportunity is exhausted. So this area that you introduced us to, what I love about your work is that you continually introduce us to concepts that then change how we think and then change how we behave and they shape organizations. But you use the term discovery-driven planning. 
Why did you choose that? And could you give us an example? So discovery-driven planning actually had its roots in some work I was doing on the subject of corporate flops. And at the time, these were big initiatives started by companies that are really well-run and really smart. So things like Federal Express's ZapMail product and TV Cable Week, which was going to upset the TV franchise and Bic Perfume, Euro <laughs> Disney, which I've written about a lot. And you look at these things and, and, and you know, so I have this file of them. I keep them in my office and uh, you have to lose your parent company at least $50 million to get into my flops file. That's okay. the bar. <laughs> what I began to realize was that all these things were being meticulously planned with smart people who were at the top of their game. I mean, Disney, how, how much smarter can you be as an organization in the entertainment space than Disney? And yet, when they were going into something that was new to them, whether it was a new geography, as Euro Disney was, whether it was a new kind of offering, like different media streams are now, but something that had a lot of uncertainty in it. You just couldn't plan as though you had a platform of experience. And that really got us, my colleague, my co-author and I, thinking about, well, how would you plan if you knew from the beginning that you didn't know that the opportunity was to make discoveries rather than plan as though you had all the answers? You know, in a way, it flies against so much of what we're taught as managers, as leaders, which is the willingness to say, not only do I not know, I'm going to be very frank about the fact that I don't know, then I'm going to construct a set of opportunities to experiment, which may or may not have a payoff, but they will represent learning. So this then got me on the whole idea of discovery-driven planning, planning to recognize that you have a lot of uncertainty. Now, what I think is cool about that now is we are all, whether we like it or not, we're all right now today in a high uncertainty situation. And so what a lot of people don't understand is that the tools of innovation are totally applicable to what you need to figure out in your strategy right now today. It's just many people have not been taught them. And it's because we're so invested in this exploitation phase that we don't teach people the whole life cycle. So one of the kind of encouraging things I think for your listeners is the tools are out there. You just need to take some time to go get smarter about them. And so it's things like discovery-driven planning. You may know that in the context of the lean startup, which made such a splash a few years ago. It's things like test and learn, plan a little bit. I mean, a lot of your own work, Kayan, on innovating from the middle would fit into that bucket. And what's neat about it is there's a whole discipline which exists. You just need to bring it in. It's remarkable how how often we recreate the wheel, we rewrite the wheel. There's so much out there that's already been tested and validated that we don't reach for. Where would a strategist start? Someone who realizes that we're now in an environment and probably have been that requires learning over predictability, that requires agility, where would they start? Well, I don't think you do very much that's different in a lower uncertainty environment in terms of the mechanics, right? Okay. So the way that I do it is I start off with getting some insight about what's going on right now. Where are we today? And depending on the level of the engagement, a very typical thing I'll do is take people from my client company and I'll put them into what I call C teams. So one team gets to look at customers. One team gets to look at competition. One team gets to look at complementers, which is becoming increasingly important as we look at platform business models. Oh. One team looks at our own capabilities, right? That's another C and what our company's all about. And then the last team looks at context, which is what are the big kind of macro changes. And what I try to do for my clients anyway is build up the ability for them to do strategy for themselves. I think a lot of people are so afraid of the topic. They say, geez, if I just delegate it to some big consulting firm, I won't go wrong. And I think that is not necessarily the best investment because you're 
you're not building that capability, that muscle yourself. So what we'll do is we'll get each of these C teams go off and do some work. And I give them tools. You know, there's tools for each element of the C. They go off and they get some insights. And then we bring the insights back. And there's usually a synthesis process. Then you have to really look at the senior team. And this is where your chief strategy officer role becomes so important. Because what you need to do is create alignment. Right. So what's our growth gap? What investment are we prepared to be comfortable making to close that gap? With what vehicles? That then, once you've got alignment, flows into a series of strategic decisions. So what arenas are we going to contest? How fast are we going to move? Is it going to be homegrown or acquired? Is it all those kind of questions you have to make choices about, right? Because strategy is fundamentally about making the best choices under conditions of uncertainty and competition where you've got limited resources. So then you flow into more of the implementation work, which is, okay, if those are our choices, what kind of organizational arrangements do we need to make? And then you're familiar with the model that I use for navigating portfolios, then it flows over into what kind of portfolio does it does that mean? And the whole thing is really more like a process than an event. So that would be the full-throated thing. Now, what uncertainty does is it probably forces you to go through that cycle faster yep. and more frequently than you might have if things were moving a little bit more slowly. But I think the building blocks are the same. Get some insight, create alignment, make some choices, get the organization behind it, and then monitor your portfolio as new information comes in. And does the balance of your portfolio change with greater or lower degree? of uncertainty or? Yeah, I believe it does. So if you're in, and I'll take the example of one of my clients right now, they are an energy production company, like a really big one. And their whole business, you know, you meet with your regulator once a year and argue about price. And once you've established that, the rest of it is all about efficient operations. And that's been your life forever. And what has happened now, of course, with the whole energy environment is in complete and total flux. So if I'd looked at their portfolio, say five years ago, there wouldn't have been a mountain of stuff in the core, perhaps a few things in the new platform area. So they run a robotic mine, for example, where no human being has to go be in harm's way, which I think is awesome. And then a few things that are like options for the future. You just kind of keep an eye on things. Well, I think today what we're seeing is a sort of a march to the higher uncertainty portions of the portfolio in response to the fact that we just have so much uncertainty. The only way we're going to figure this out is making those kinds of investments. Yes. Yes. I've got so many questions that we don't have a a lot of time for, but there are two things I would like to know if you would comment on is you use the term arena instead of industry. Mm -hmm. Why? And then it sounds like you're talking about an inflection point that your client is preparing for, or hopefully was already prepared for. Could you talk about those two things? So the traditional obsession in strategy was industry, right? So your performance was a function of how attractive was the position and how attractive was the industry. And if you could create a good position in a good industry, you could sort of ride that forever. And that's still true. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem that today, industry barriers are getting very blurred right? The boundaries of an industry is very blurred. And so you take a company like TransferWise, which was a company founded by the founders of Skype to basically figure out how to get money from one place to another more precisely without moving the money. So they kind of create micro markets on either end of a transaction. And so the money that's say in Europe never leaves Europe. The money that's in the US never leaves the US, but within those places, there are people who need some other kind of currency and they do that. Well, so what is that? Is it a tech firm? Is it a bank? Is it a money processor? Is it a you know, who knows? And so that's just an example of how our standard industry classifications really, really struggle to accommodate that. So when you're thinking strategically, some of the most significant competition you'll ever get is probably from other industries coming into your own or 
where the resource that you're depending on gets spent on something else. So for some time now, I've talked a lot about how spending on cell phones, spending on you know tech, right, squeezes out spending on clothing and on automobiles and things like that. And especially now that we're all working from home, tech spending is just eating a huge share of even corporate level spending as opposed to other things. Now, what's interesting to me about that is we're not actually spending on innovation. We're just spending on an enabling technology. Like if we don't have this way of operating, we can't operate. So it's necessary, but it's not buying you competitive advantage. So that's the whole idea of arenas. It's really think about what you're competing for, what scarce resource, and then who are all the other entities that would be interested in grabbing a piece of that scarce resource for themselves. (laughs) Yes. Whether they're in your industry or not, and whether they're even competing for the same job to be done or not. Fascinating. Okay, great. What are you working on now? And I'd also like to hear a little bit of an inflection point as well. My book, Seeing Around Corners, is about various aspects of strategic inflection points, which um, Andy Grove defined back in the 90s as some pressure that exerts a 10x force on your organization, 10x force on your business. It changes something by an order of magnitude. And I was really interested in that. And it all kind of came together when a friend sent me an article. And the article was called, What If You Change the World and Nobody Noticed? And what the article observed was that these huge changes to things that ultimately end up having a big effect, when they first are brought into the world, people don't really understand the significance. So airplane flight, right? Manned flight. When it was first introduced, it took it took four or five years before people said, hang on, if we can have people flying around in a controllable way, we can get rid of railroads. We can, we can have interstate commerce. We can do all these things. But in the beginning, you don't really realize it because it happens gradually and then suddenly. So some constraint is shifted and you may not even see it. Now, what's interesting is you have the event, the thing that's going to cause this change. Then you have a bunch of people who see the early signs and they hype it up. Right. So back in 1995, there was an article in Fortune based on Amazon's founding, which said, oh, you know, in the future, retail as we know it is going to vanish and it's all going to be stuff that arrives at your doorstep and, 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 and. And they were right, right, Mm -hmm. in the longer time horizon. Back in 1995, (laughs) Netscape had barely been invented. How did you even get on the internet? You got on a phone. You We didn't know how to pay for things. And so all these retailers dove into, you may remember this frenzy, they dove into, I got to have a web page and I got to have a URL and I got to do all this stuff. And of course, the infrastructure wasn't there. The ecosystem was incomplete. And so there's this hype cycle. And then people go, see, told you that was never going to work. But then it's kind of like Gartner's hype cycle, where there are a few survivors who figure out the the model. And in the case of the early internet companies, it would have been eBay and, of course, Amazon and the others. And they actually start to make this inflection point a reality. And so a recent one to kind of make it clear is when Dollar Shave Club and other firms basically said, wait a minute, who needs retail? If we've got a simple enough to describe product, we'll just have a subscription model. We'll send razor blades right to your door. Why shouldn't we do that? And of course, now you can buy everything on a subscription basis from dog food to mattresses to, you know, who knows. But I think that's an example of I don't need to invest in bricks and mortar. I don't even need to invest in my computers. I can just rent it all from Amazon or Google or somebody. And so it changes those constraints. Back in 1995, if you wanted to set up an e-commerce operation, you had to buy servers and hire programmers. And it was a really big barrier to entry. And only the most well-financed firms could do it. Today, child's play. If you wanted to set up an internet shop, you could do it in your garage this afternoon. (laughs) It'd be dead easy. Right. That the whole ecosystem has built up solving all the, not small problems, but the multifarious problems that stand in the way of the possibility. Fascinating. I have tons of questions, but we don't have as much time with you as we would love to have. What is something that 
you've changed your mind about? Oh, that's a really interesting one. Something that worries me that I've changed my mind about is, I guess I have thought for a long time that people would be highly motivated by their own self-interest when they're making public policy or even decisions about their families or whatnot. And something that has become a reality, at least here in America, is this almost tribalization of, of policy choices to the point where I'll vote for something or weigh in on something that's actually not in my own best interest, but is my tribe wins if that position or that whatever goes through. And I find that very worrying because if we're going to resort to tribalism to make our judgments, then you don't have the ability to have a reasonable conversation. And people are simply like, this is who I am and this is how I'm going to take a position. And so you really have a lot of room for fear-mongering and negativity to become the dominant force. And so I'm struggling actually with this. I write a monthly newsletter and this particular couple of months I've been writing about the opportunity for a new social contract. And in fact, Kayan, you were part of this very first unveiling of this back last February or March when the pandemic first hit. And you did this sort of round the world, round the clock um, series of lectures for which you must have had to ingest enormous amounts of caffeine. <laughs> but anyway, back then you said to me, like, think about how you would apply the models and seeing around corners to where we are right now. And one of the things I did was create four scenarios, as you may remember. And so one of them was sort of Les Miserables, a horrible economy, no new social contract, poverty, you know, violence, people just in a very bad way. Then we had sort of rinse and repeat of the last 40 years, uh, but that's when the economy comes back, but income inequality is still so dominant. And then on the other dimension, we had kind of a return to Roosevelt, you know, FDR's New Deal. And then if the economy really improves, we'd had Great Society 2.0. And those were four scenarios we laid out a year ago. And so I was really in love with this Roosevelt one. Like I really was. I was getting my preferences all mixed up with my predictions. And as I was working on this newsletter about this, I just kept saying, you know, this is not coming together the way that you're talking about. And I realized that I was falling victim to something I warn people about, which is just because that's the future you prefer does not mean that's the only future you should be preparing for. And so that was a big learning. I mean, it was pretty humbling, I have to say. <laughs> Caught by my own theory, oh no. <laughs> but at least I think I have made enough progress to say, hey, if we really look at what the signals are telling us, and we continue to have this incredible amount of polarization, there's no way we'll be able to pull off a new New Deal kind of thing if we can't bring people along on the basis of what would be better for everybody. Right, right, right. All right. Well, thank you, Rita. Where can people find you? best. Oh. RitaMcGrath.com. RitaMcGrath.com is a great place to start. That's where I post well, all kinds of stuff. You can get links to videos, links to newsletters, links to other, my other work. There's a couple of sections for the book. So it's a good place to start. Great. Yep. And LinkedIn and Twitter. You're very active as well. Thank you so much for everything that you do to change how we all approach strategy and shape the future. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Maybe we should do this again. If you have more questions, we'll yeah. do it again. <laughs> yeah. I would all right. Love that. Thanks. Thank you to our guest. Thank you to our producer, Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. Catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers. Thinkers.